has not begun to live until he can rise above the narrow confines of his own individual concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., speaking at the New Covenant Baptist Church in Chicago, Illinois, in April of 1967. He would be murdered in Memphis less than a year later. Happy Holiday. I'm Tom Hall, and welcome to the show on this Martin Luther King, Jr. Day of Service. Today on Midday, we'll meet three people for whom every day is a day of service and whose animating force and deep-seated passions are centered, as Dr. King said, in the broader concerns of humanity. A little later, I'll speak with a dancer who brings the joy of musical theater to young people and an activist who works to make the Woodburn-McCabe community in Baltimore better. But we begin with Sharena Ashanti Christmas, an artist, teacher, and activist who is the founder of Muse360, an organization that works with young African Americans to increase their life skills and broaden their understanding of black history. Sharana Ashanti Christmas joins us on Zoom. Hey, Sharana, happy holiday and happy new year. Yeah, happy new year, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. Always great to talk to you. So you and I go way back. We uh, worked together (laughs) when I was the uh, music director of the Baltimore Choral Arts Society. You performed with us on numerous occasions because you have a big dance component of Muse yes. 360, um, but you and for years you were housed at the UB Blake Center, um, but mm-hmm. you're no longer there. So, uh, no. w- will that affect your 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 the dance uh, portion of of the work that you all do at Muse 360? Well, yeah, certainly. Um, we were at UB Blake for about 17 years, and this would have been our 19th year of uh, Rainfall Dance Studio. That's how I first started getting into, you know, offering the arts to Baltimore City. Um, So this year we had to pause um, because we don't have a space to be at, but we are continuing the work kind of in more remote locations or, you know, mobile locations, um, but it's not like what we usually do. And so I did think that it was an opportunity for us to kind of recalibrate and think about ways that we offer dance to the community that's more accessible um, and also kind of a way to hone in on some of the young people that want to continue that work. But yes, the dance studio, Rainfall Dance Studio, unfortunately, um, is on pause uh, until further notice because we don't have a space that can accommodate, you know, a group of dancers or students that want to pursue that kind of skill. All right, but you're on the hunt for a space. So, uh, listeners, if anybody yes. knows of a of a lead for uh, Sharana Christmas, uh, let us know and we'll put you in touch. Um, but of course, there are many, many other facets to oh, yes. Muse Three Sixty. Talk about the study abroad cohorts. Uh, that you take to uh, various locations literally around the world. Talk about that part of your program. Yeah, so the wonderful the wonderful opportunity and privilege that I have uh, with running Muse 360 is that we have multiple programs. And so Rainfall Dance Studio was one side of it. And what that served for us was, as a, was a derivative into thinking about other ways to serve young people. And so New Generation Scholars is actually a program that I founded in 2007 to help young people understand the Black diaspora as it relates to how they live in today's society and also how it relates to how they produce their work and how they produce their art. So we have young people that come from various, you know, artistic mediums from dance to videography um, to visual arts, you know, all types of things, right? And so, you know, the, the, uh, the component of studying abroad just provides that opportunity for them to see people that look like them 
for them to experience the world in a different way, um, to leave Baltimore, you know? And so we've been to about 12 different countries. We've traveled to three domestic locations. Um, and so we are now also in our 15th cohort because, you know, we started in 2007. So our 15th cohort is, is going strong. We serve about 25 young people in this cohort. Um, and from that, those young people this year actually are focusing on migration. They visited the BMA um, with Jessica Bell, who's the curator of the Great Migration um, exhibition that's currently up and um, are focusing also on just what it means to self-emancipate through migration and through um, Marunaj. So we're taking all of that history, um, the history of Baltimore's own migration, um, pre-Civil War actually, we're studying that and you know, then creating theater pieces from that. We're creating a short film, we're going to create a zine. Um, the young people have developed nine points, a nine point program for the city so that young people are, you know, kind of advocating for their voice. And with all of that, we're also traveling. Um, so it's, um, it's just really a wonderful, as you can see, I'm very excited about it. So I'm, you know, my energy is up, but it's really just, like I said, a wonderful opportunity for young people and also for us as adult scholars to bring together these intergenerational groups to dive into our work, to dive into our history and figure out like, how can we advocate for ourselves using what we know about our history, using our talents, our creative talents, so that we can make this world better. So, you know, we take all of those experiences and the young people, you know, have done amazing things over the last 15 years. So that is the program that is taking up most of my time now. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, you have yeah. all sorts of reasons to be excited because it really is, you know, an incredibly unique and really, really important experience for these kids. You are working with kids uh, and helping them develop their voice. They, they, literally, you are helping them find their voice, the yeah. way that they can uh, tell their stories and the way that they can relate their stories to the stories mm -hmm. of people who came before them. Um, what What's the age group uh, of the, yeah. the folks you're working with? So for New Generation Scholars, it's age 13 to 21. And, um, you know, sometimes we work with young people even up to the age of 24. And I know that might seem, you know, a very, you know, a very broad group, but we really believe in intergenerational communal learning. That is that is our, our charge as we move forward with the future of News 360. Um, so the age group is, um, you know, it's pretty vast. But like I said, we're also thinking about ways to redefine what peer learning looks like. Um, so, yeah, so. That's the age group that we serve in that particular program. But we serve young people as young as two, of course, in the dance program. But that that's the age for that NGS. And your your new generation scholars, youth leadership study abroad cohort, you know, are the folks mm -hmm. that take these trips. But you also have and you, you touched on it briefly, uh, something that you call the new generation scholars intergenerational institute. So you've got yeah. people from different generations sharing their experiences. How does that work? Oh, it's been it's been amazing. So, you know, just like how I was saying that New Generation Scholars and the other programs were derivative of like Rainfall Dance Studio, the first program I created, New Generation Scholars Intergenerational Institute was created and um, co-founded actually in the beginning of 20, actually at the end of 2021, I had this idea to think about, okay, what if we take the information and the knowledge that we have and the knowledge that we know and expand it to all ages, you know, all generations, elders, people my age, you know, um, and just young people coming together to learn about the Black diaspora. But specifically, it's about really Black knowledge production, right? So like thinking about like how we can have autonomy over our own education, because 
what we know to be true. Um, and Dr. King has talked about this and many other activists. You know, we don't get a chance to know more about ourselves, right? Especially when it comes to like cultural competencies in schools, the curriculum is not really aligned in that way. So this is an opportunity for young people and adults to teach classes. So last year we offered nine free courses. Um, we served 67 people in Baltimore and beyond. We had people as far as Brazil, um, people as far as Germany joining, right? And then we had the young people create curriculum. Like one of our young people, um, Kyan Buris, who's a senior at the, the Baltimore Design School, created a curriculum around Black metahumans or Black superheroes. And he's actually going to be um, teaching that class coming up on January 19th. But, you know, he was able to create a curriculum. We helped him to develop that. And so now he has this experience of figuring out, okay, what do I want to learn? What do I want to learn communally? And what can I teach? Um, I also teach African diaspora one-on-one because it's the basis for how we've arrived where we are. And it's like an investigative approach to thinking about, you know, why we are where we are and how we are now dwelling in the world. Um, and then we also have Bofina Yuan, who's one of the co-founders. She also runs Archive Liberia. So she looks at um, the sister city of Liberia in Baltimore. Like a lot of people don't, under don't know that Baltimore and Liberia are sister cities. So she teaches a course with one of our youth, youth scholars, Shoshana, um, called Across the Atlantic, which is really, really exciting because we're actually looking at the anti-colonialist movement that happened um, pre-Civil War, you know, in Baltimore. And a lot of people just don't know that Baltimore was this place where that connection was happening. There's so much history there. So, you know, when we bring this, this, you know, these free courses to the world, really, and Baltimore is at the center of it. It really does say a lot about the power of, you know, our intellectual capacities creatively, you know, and also just, you know, as we dwell in advocacy and civic engagement. So, yeah, it, it was a it was an experiment that we did um, in, in early 2022. And now um, January 19th, we will launch seven free courses um, for our next year, our next semester, which is, is starting um, in a couple of days. So, yeah, it's. It's just been a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And I could not have done this work without having this experience with not only my comrades and my peers like Delfina Yuan and Dr. Jessica Johnson and Kyle Pompey, um, but also with the young people that I've been able to serve. So now we have about 30 um, legacy scholars that are, you know, that are from Baltimore, but they are in college and, and living and doing the work all around the world. So, But still you know, connected to Muse 360. To yeah. develop this. Yeah, I mean, what what's wonderful is yes, that even though they're older, you, we're like the web. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're 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 they're still connected to you. Shireen yeah. Ashanti Christmas is the founder and mm -hmm. director of Muse Three Sixty Arts, and the importance of knowledge about the diaspora uh, can't be understated. I mean, especially in this weird climate where people on the on the right side of the political spectrum are trying to politicize the. The, the teaching of basic African-American history. Uh, you're just, uh, you know, jumping right in uh, yeah. and, and, and elevating uh, knowledge about the diaspora in particular uh, as a really fundamental uh, knowledge base that, that every African-American kid should have. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, you know, the diaspora is also, you know, particularly thinking about the Americas, it's for everyone to understand. I think that once folks have an understanding of you know, the contributions that we've made to, you know, America. I mean, you know, aside from, you know, some of the things that are taught in school, you know, when you think about the things that 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 black folks and black people of the diaspora in the Americas have been able to accomplish throughout all of the challenges, right? 
it I think it, it brings together people of all backgrounds and, you know, and, and nationalities and so on and so forth to really at least ask the question, you know, what more can I do? What more can I understand? So, you know, it may not it doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything, but this is the work that we have to do for me as a black woman, as a black mother. I'm charged to do this work. But I am, you know, of course, hoping that my vision could expand so that people can start to ask questions about what is the true history? You know, what is, you know, com- you know, completely profound about this city, Baltimore, that we live in that's predominantly black, where they had one of the largest free populations? Like, what does that information do to empower the next generation? And really, that's what all of the work that we do at Muse 360 is supposed to do. It's not just supposed to develop the next generation of great artists and creatives, but it's for us to develop the next generation of educators, thinkers, activists, cultural workers, you know, because it can't just be me. <laughs> can't just be me. So, sure. you know, seeing my young people, you know, in this world doing that is just is really what it's all about. And the thing is that, you know, your energy level is still high. I mean, you know, we met many years ago when you uh, and, and you have been doing this now for many years. Um, and that's impressive. It's easy to get burned out yeah. doing this work. It's easy to get exhausted doing this work, isn't it? I mean, yes. but 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 the, these kids, I, I've, I've seen in person how these kids in particular energize you and you certainly energize them. Yes. Yes. They definitely energize me. <laughs> they have way more energy than me. Yeah. And like I said, you know, now with the different generations that we work with, you know, I've hired a lot of the dancers that I've, I've worked with. I've hired over 42, um, you know, of the Muse 360 alumni, whether they've been in New Generation Scholars, whether they've been in Rainfall Dance Studio or even Spark of Genius, which is our entrepreneurship, a creative entrepreneurship program. So I've hired them to come on and work as teaching artists so work as administrators. So, you know, they kind of help keep me going as I get older, <laughs> you know, um, but I still have some energy in me. Yes, I definitely still oh, have some energy in you me. And I started do. so young, so I've learned so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. energy's never been your problem, Sherry. I, I, I can tell you that. But, you know, the, That's good. as That's you good. as you I'm look at that the, I have energy when you see me. Yeah, because, I mean, the thing is that, that you've also been able to adapt. You know, I mean, you know, this started as a dance program and then you've expanded mm-hmm. into other areas. I mean, as you dream uh, and look ahead to, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, where where do you see the program expanding further? Or, you know, just what, what offshoots do you think you may end up following? Yeah. Well, you know, what's great about this year is that, you know, and like I said, you know, we're no longer um, at a, you know, at UB Blake. And I think it gave us an opportunity to expand around the city. And we actually are partnering with Afro charities um, really diving into Afro archives. And I think that that work in itself has have, has gotten me to think about how this work could live at larger educational institutions. So specifically around New Generation Scholars Intergenerational Institute, I hope that in the next five years, we can you know be planted in some of the Baltimore City high schools or cultural institutions um, where it's a program that is accessible and it's a kind of like a think tank. And then, you know, in 10 years, you know, that this is my, this is mighty ambitious, but, you know, I would love for it to be um, rooted at, you know, in a, at a HBCU, you know, like a college or a university that could really house this work so this, that this work continues in a broader scale. And I think Baltimore has the ability to do that. You know, 10 years is, you know, goes by fairly quickly. Um, you know, but I would also love to just, you know, have a home base for Muse 360 so that, you know, young people can come in and ideate, 
their own works and, you know, use us as a model and use us as a resource, you know? And um, one of the things that I'm most proud of this year, I've really thought about how we can serve other populations of youth. So we're actually launching um, New Generation Scholars um, mutual aid fund for juvenile, uh, for young people that are in um, the juvenile system in Baltimore City. So um, these young people, it could be their families, it could, they could be incarcerated themselves, but we're, we're launching a mutual fund where we'll give, you know, not only resources and money to young people and their families, but also support them in their journey. So within the next five to 10 years, I am going to see all of that culminate. I'm going to speak it into existence <laughs> because I really do feel like a lot of our um, outcomes and strong success has been because I have such a very, you know, strong foundation in how I see what we can do. I believe that we can make it happen. And I think that yeah. I and, think that that's where I see things come to life. And you know? your, your believing uh, has made it happen over these many years. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not betting against you, yeah. Sharena. Never. <laughs> Sharena Ashanti Christmas is the founder and director of Muse 360. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, and happy holiday. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you for thinking of us. Coming up, a performing artist who moved to Baltimore from Broadway and who's sharing her artistry with local youth. C.J. Phillip joins me on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're celebrating this Martin Luther King Jr. Day of service by learning about the work of three African-American women who are making a difference here in Baltimore. My next guest is C.J. Phillip. She's the founder of Dance and Be More. It's a performing arts group that taps into the talent of little kids and youth and adults and even senior citizens. C.J. Phillip joins us on Zoom. Hey, C.J., happy holiday. Hello, thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about the organization Dance and Be More and uh, why you decided to to conjure it up. Yeah, absolutely. So I founded Dance and Be More in 2010 here in Baltimore uh, with the hopes of helping to create community and connection through music and movement. And we started first with families, with our FASAFAM Family Jam. And we then expanded to elder arts programming at the Waxter Senior Center. And to date, we have several programs. And our mission really is to help people to connect to one another, to connect to the arts at every age and stage of their life. And so you can come to a Dance and Be More program as a pre-K, um, at you know three years old or you can come to an adult free ballet class at 37 and say hey I've never taken ballet but I always wanted to and here I am or you can come as a senior citizen in your 80s to our elder arts programming and plug into creativity really at any time of your life because you don't age out of creativity and so we're here for you to join in at whatever stage you're at. Yeah that's terrific you don't indeed age out of creativity um, and you come to this uh, as a, a very experienced performing artist yourself, you were on Broadway. Tell us a little bit about your background as a performing artist. 
Yeah. So I grew up in upstate New York and I had dreams of being on Broadway. And I remember going to New York City and and auditioning and sort of plugging away like every struggling artist. And I was fortunate enough to uh, be on Broadway in a few different shows. I was in the original Broadway cast of Big the Musical. I was also in a show called Street Corner Symphony. And then I went on tour with Dreamgirls and I became a dance captain for Hairspray on Broadway. And that was actually my first trip to Baltimore was to help mount the Broadway national tour of Hairspray at the old Mechanic Theater. And so that was my first visit and uh, got to see Baltimore and had no idea I would move here uh, years later. And I'm so glad I did. And uh, got to travel the world doing a lot of different shows, Legally Blonde, and started directing and writing and choreographing and started winning competitions as choreographers and sort of the next big Broadway choreographers. I won something called Dance Break in uh, 2008. Seven, And then in 2009, we moved to Baltimore and people in New York thought I was crazy. And they were like, you're just about to make it and do something big. Why are you leaving New York and going to Baltimore? (laughs) And I have to tell people it was the best move I could have ever made. I have absolutely loved the creative community here in Baltimore and felt so much more at home here. The sense of collaboration, um, the way that I feel personally as a woman and a woman of color um, that there are so many opportunities and options for me um, to really spread my wings, to lead, to do all kinds of things that were a bit of a challenge, if I'm honest, um, in what was a bit of a boys club in New York when it came to being on Broadway. And so, you know, creating dance and be more here, knowing that I come from a family of community activists and social social workers who really needed their life's work to connect to community. I felt the same way about my art. I didn't want to dance for just dance sake. I wanted my dancing, my writing, my music to have some sort of impact. And so that's really what I'm striving for with Dance and Be More. And coming full circle now, uh, the company is doing great. The organization is thriving. We have several programs. We meet thousands of people a year. We have a team program called Voices of Carmen that oddly enough, in 2022 got an honorable mention in the Broadway Tony Award Playbill for artistic excellence. And so we're coming full circle and I thought, I do love the theater and Broadway, but I don't feel like moving back to New York. I love Baltimore. So I'm going to do Broadway right here in Baltimore. And that's how we started Be More Broadway Live. Well, it's great to have you here. And you and I first met a few years ago talking about this Voices of Carmen production, which was a thing that did involve young people, high school kids, Uh, And it was a kind of a riff on uh, the story of Carmen, the famous uh, opera written by, you know, Bizet back in the 19th century. But it's, it's, um, you know, I I think indicative of the kind of new take that you uh, bring. There's there's this new, interesting, very imaginative perspective to your, uh, you know, the productions that you you come up with. So tell us a little bit about Be More Broadway Live. It's going to open at the Motor House on the 4th of February during Black History Month, and then you'll do another uh, show sometime later in the spring. But what's the the impetus behind this show uh, on the 4th, uh, which is called Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope? Yeah, I love this production. I thought it was the first production I'd ever seen, but I realized um, I never saw it. I just listened to the album as a little kid 
over and over again until I scratch the record. And later as, so I've imagined Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope in my mind. It was written by Mickey Grant and Bennett Carroll. And I have just in the research and digging into this piece, just grown to love these women and the legacy that they have left for us. Um, the doors that they have opened, the creativity that they uh fostered in the sense of play and community that they created with the urban arts players in New York for African-American performers and artists, as well as Puerto Rican performers and artists in, in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope made its Broadway debut in 1972. It was the first show that a woman had ever done on Broadway. It was the first Broadway production ever uh, directed by an African-American woman in 1972. And so one of the things that I found really important is, you know, we do a lot of multi-generational programming with um, Dance and Be More, but I wanted this to help us to understand um, Black Broadway and not just Blacks on Broadway, because when you go to see Dream Girls and when you go to see Once on This Island, those shows were still written by white men. I wanted our young people in Voices of Carmen, and during the school year, they're a part of a program we call AMP Up, which is an arts mentorship program, to work in tandem with the cast to really excavate who were these creative women who were the actual creators of the songs, the book, the libretto, and staging of this show and what was going on in their mind and in their world and in their culture that allowed them to do this kind of work and that they shared it with us 50 years ago and that it still resonates is phenomenal. So our young people have been working since November. I'm presenting a pre-show to Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. So the audience knows who wrote it and what they were all about before our adult cast actually performs Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope at the Motor House opening weekend, February 4th. It's a phenomenal cast. It's jazz, it's blues, it's music. It's about the African-American experience, about ghetto life, about culture, feminism, um, poverty, all these different topics that are still plaguing us today. But the way that they do it um, through song, through dance, through comedy, really sparks a conversation in a way that I think is very, um, I don't know, there's something about it that gives a sense of community and safety in the way that these women really held these topics with such care. C.J. Phillip is the artistic director and founder of Dance and Be More, their uh, production uh, put on by Be More Broadway Live, which is one of the many pro one of many programs that uh, Dance and Be More puts on, is called Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We're celebrating this Martin Luther King Day of service by talking to folks who are in service to folks throughout our community today. Um, and so, CJ, tell us a little bit more about Vinette Carroll, the first black woman to ever direct a show on Broadway, uh, as well as the composer of this uh, show, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, which is, I guess, it's a, it's a musical review, right? It's a, it's a, a, comp a compilation of uh, songs and, and uh, uh, a book that tells the story of uh, black history on Broadway. Do I have that right? Yeah, very, very close. Yeah, it talks about the Black experience in a lot of different ways from Black church to the neighborhood bar to little girls hand jive games to dance, history of dance. And um, Vinette Carroll was 
a, a phenomenal mind. She was a, a psychology major. She was a gifted uh, uh, student, but then she found theater and sort of stumbled on it. She's um, Trinidadian and her father was like, oh my goodness, you're going to be a, a philosopher. Why would you do acting? Anyone could do acting. <laughs> And so she was a, a little bit of a disappointment then, but um, I hope that after doing Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope on Broadway, and then after that, collaborating again to do uh, Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, perhaps he was uh, maybe singing a different tune. Mickey Grant was, like I said, the first woman to have a show on Broadway. She was also the first uh, uh, woman to have a full contract on a soap opera hmm. ever. Hmm. in the United States. Everybody else was just sort of day players. Um, and there were actors who were working, but none of them had a full contract. She was the first. And um, yeah, she's a phenomenal talent. She also were, wrote uh, Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, and uh, as well as parts of Working and other musicals. And both of them has had incredible careers and in New York and traveled the world. And as you you know, dig a little deeper into who they were, you realize that these women's work was just so in tuned with their community and their culture and the way that they could express that uh, in ways that sometimes were were difficult for others to do. And so I'm, I'm floored by their work. Uh, a friend of mine, Charlene Water, who's also a Broadway actress and uh, television actress who was a, the original cast of Ain't Misbehavin', replaced Mickey Grant in uh, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope on the Bus and Truck. She did a beautiful interview with Mickey Grant that our young people in Amp Up watched. And then as a surprise, just a couple of weeks ago, we actually had Charlene come and visit on our Zoom call to tell them about what it was like to be in the rehearsal room. Some of the things that she said, she said they were courageous. They were playful. There was joy in the room. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, someone said, that's what we're doing now. Like we are living on the legacy of what they created as nurturers, as, as, as artists, as leaders. And that we get to continue that legacy is really quite beautiful and feels like an honor. You also involve uh, the work of a very internationally acclaimed artist named Larry Poncho Brown uh, and, yes. and his artwork. Tell us about how that will play into this production at the Motor House. Yeah, I feel so fortunate, just really incredibly blessed to be collaborating with Larry Poncho Brown. I was interviewing him for another a film project that I was directing, and I was in his studio, just my eyes were just busting out of my head at all the work, the colors, the, the textures, all of it. And there was one piece that said, I am man. I am a man. And there's a song in the show, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, called They Call Me Man. And I thought, I want pictures. I want portraits. I want paintings of African-Americans all around the stage. And I said, Larry, this, this painting right here, can you tell me more about it? So we got to chatting. And before, you know, a few minutes later, he was like, let's do this. Let's have my artwork be on your set. Let's have my artwork be a part of the way that you tell this story. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, it, I've been pinching myself and almost thinking that it's not real until I saw him actually post something about it on social media. I was like, this is happening right now. So there's actually, when you come into the motor house, you'll actually walk through the 
lobby gallery and it's all Larry Poncho Brown's work before you even enter the theater and then the projections within the scenes that go on in the show is Larry Poncho Brown's work and how it's related to the experiences of African Americans in the show and in the characters and in the play and in the storytelling of Mickey Grant and Vinette Carroll and it is just it's it's a whole it's taking the art to a whole nother level. It's doubling down on just the history and the culture within the piece. And it's quite chilling to see some of these images. And how do you balance that as a director? That's been, you know, the part that I'm playing with right now, uh, sort of not overstimulating an audience, but striking just the right balance yeah. with the visual impact as well as the theatrical. Yeah, and you got, of course, it's one of a million decisions that as a director you need to make and uh, and it can be tricky business absolutely but what, yeah. a, what a great idea to involve the visual arts to involve uh, multi-generations uh, in all of the projects that you do I mean it's just terrific CJ Phillip the founder and director of dance and be more they have a number of different programs their uh, be more Broadway live uh, series begins on the 4th of February at the Motor House a wonderful black box theater at the corner of Howard Street and North Avenue uh, in Baltimore uh, and you're going to do three productions you're going to do Don't Bother Me I Can't Cope in February you'll do a musical in the spring and then uh, we talked about Voices of Carmen you're going to do a, a, a revival of that uh, in July at the Motorhouse so plenty of great stuff going on there so thanks so much and break a leg on all of these productions I appreciate it Ah, thank you for having me Coming up, a woman who organizes the folks in her community to revitalize their neighborhood. Phyllis Gilmore will join me as our celebration of the Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service continues. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're talking to three women who are working with youth and others to expand educational and artistic opportunities, and in the case of my next guest, revitalize an historic neighborhood. We're doing this here on this Martin Luther King Day of Service. Phyllis Gilmore is the president of the Woodburn McCabe Community Association. She's also the vice president of the York Road Partnership and the Northern District Liaison to the Mayor's Public Safety Commission, and she joins us on Zoom. Ms. Phyllis, welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. My pleasure. So we met a few months ago at uh, an event that uh, Habitat for Humanity of the Chesapeake sponsored because you were given the Community Partner of the Year Award from Habitat. Um, tell us a little bit about the work you do with Woodburn McCabe Community Association. Um, well, I, I I became president for Woodburn McCabe in uh, 2016, um, which was a very de-invested and, you know, unprived community where I wanted to, you know, lift the community up, you know, bring youth in, into the conversations of having youth having an input in, you know, re revitalizing this community. 
Uh, we was like 80% vacancy in the community. Uh, when I came in, uh, we partnered with Habitat for Humanity to come in and, you know, just fix some of these broken homes that we have. Um, and we was able to bring that uh, vacancy rate up to like um, 25% right now. Um, we also work on uh, 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 public safety issues. We work on trash and, you know, having residents upkeep their properties is, is part of, you know, bringing the community together as one working with city agencies, working with the mayor's office, working with all those entities that do have an important part in, you know, bringing communities up in beautification, but also safety and um, uh, uh, planning events and other things for the community. And um, we should uh, ask you to, to place the community. Tell for folks who don't know where Woodburn McCabe is, uh, tell us tell us where you are in the city of Baltimore. Well, we are we are northern northern Baltimore, right off of York Road, um, uh, down like a couple blocks up from Green Spring. I mean Green Greenmount Avenue. Um, a, a, a very like it's, it's, it's actually called the Govins area. Um, so if anybody familiar with York Road, um, we are we are right off of York Road, um, sitting in the middle of York Road, right off of um, between um, Winston Govins and Mid Govins um, communities. So we sit right smack in the middle. And how long have you lived there? I've been in this community for 17 years. And what what would you describe as the biggest changes in the community over that time? I mean, you've been the president of the association, you know, as you said, since 2016. But uh, in those other years, you know, uh, up to the present moment, um, how would you describe the the changes in the evolution of the neighborhood? But I mean, some, you know, a lot of these neighborhoods, we, we find they go up, they go down. Uh, has it been a uh, a sort of, you know, uh, a varying, a var- if, we, if we were to chart this on a graph, would it would the chart go up, down, all around? Um, I would say yes. Um, and I can give you like a graphic of where I've been since 2016. Um, so when I came in, the community was heavily drug infested, vacant properties, the community wasn't upkept, like residents wasn't upkeeping properties. Um, so 2016, 2017, we went on like a wave, upholding residents to take care of their properties, trying to, you know, look at the vacant the vacant homes, um, thinking about public safety heavily in this community because when I think about you know, investment in the community, getting people in that wants to invest to live here. You know, safety is one of the major priorities that we wanted to really focus on. Our community parks was heavily drug infested. 2018 and 19, we really made a big dent into um, working with BPD, working with city agencies, working with our community partners to put attention on certain areas of the block, like our high concentrated areas. Um, and we was able to actually push our drug dealers. We was able to get our totals down to 25% vacancy rate. 
We now work with residents of upkeeping their properties. It's a great testament to your leadership to have that kind of progress. I mean, to have the vacancy rate alone, you know, be reduced by 60 percent uh, is really terrific. But I wonder, how do you make the argument? What What is the pitch that you make to the residents of Woodburn McCabe when you say, hey, folks, let's make sure that we uh, each keep our properties clean and, uh, you know, kept up and and nice? Uh, Because changing that mindset, changing folks' uh, expectations about what they should be doing in their neighborhood can sometimes be a really difficult thing to do. How, How do you think it is that you have been so successful in that regard? Tom, you're right. Changing the mindset and the culture of the community is actually where I am still struggling. We're we're on a good way where I have like 80% of the community that is buying to upkeeping their properties on the outside. But I still have residents that are not adhering to making that change. So this is when we work with the city agency. We bring in code enforcement. We work with the city agencies for the agencies to actually work with these properties hands-on, whether it's having the discussion with them to teach them how to upkeep their properties, how to dispose their trash, or is it giving them citations so they can buy into, oh, I don't want another citation, so I have to buy into what the community is doing. A lot of times the community association will have one-on-one conversations. We will have like personal meetings just to try to figure out what the family needs and, and why is it a struggle for them to buy into what actually the community is doing. You know, we are always in in the mindset of, meeting them halfway just to learn and listen to what their situations are um, and, and to help them in that process because a lot of them just coming in doesn't know how to dispose of trash doesn't know how to take care of properties so we want to be hands on with them to show them the way to make their properties more beautified on the outside Phyllis Gilmore is the president of the Woodburn McCabe Community Association. We're talking on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service, celebrating the work of three terrific women here in Baltimore doing great work for our community, showing that days of service can happen every day of the year. So, Ms. Phyllis, um, when you do things like, uh, I know uh, in your association you schedule community walks, um, what do those look like? Who comes on those? Uh, what is the purpose of those? So the community walks that, I mean, we do are community walks. Or they are called safety walks. Um, so we bring in every single agency from the city, DPW, DOT, the mayor's office, city council. So we bring in these entities to do the walk through the community to bring our eyes on the city, on what the community continual work with the agencies need to look like. So we bring in these agencies, we do the walk, we, we inspect properties, we look at lots, we look at illegal dumping. In some cases, we look at abandoned vehicles because all of that plays in the safety of a community. And do you find the city... Uh, when it comes to the mayor's office, and of course, you know, you serve as a, 
uh, a liaison between the mayor's office and the northern district in, in terms of the mayor's public safety commission. Um, but do you find that uh, they've been responsive? Has DPW been responsive? Has the Department of Transportation been responsive to your needs? Um, so, yes. With Birmingham, I can say yes. They have been responsive to our needs, our ask, um, and what we need the partnership of the agencies to look like. Yes, they have. And uh, obviously you can't do all of this work alone. Is this a, a group that, uh, you know, helps steer the, the events and the, uh, the, the uh, advocacy for the, to the city? Um, how, how big is the group of, of folks who, uh, who work on this? I mean, I know you are <laughs> an individual powerhouse yourself, but um, no one can do everything by herself. Uh, how, how many folks are you working with sort of on a, on a consistent basis? Um, we're working with like seven. Um, uh, each one of those representatives have their their own. We have a spiritual advisor. We have an events coordinator. We have ambassadors for the community that is concentrated for each block of the community. Um, cleanliness, um, cleanups. So so they they are concentrated on the actual blocks that they live on. But we actually have seven um, strong individuals that is dedicated to moving this community in a direction of success and pos- positivity. And I mean, we've been we've been great. We've been doing great for the last past six years. And. Uh, you know, sustaining that. What is it that what What are you gonna What's it gonna take for you to be able to sustain that kind of energy that you clearly created over these past six years? Um, what What's the key uh, for for other folks in other neighborhoods who are listening to our conversation here? What do they need to know? What's your advice to them about helping to turn the tide in their neighborhoods the way that you've been able to turn it turn the tide in Woodburn McCabe? Well, it's, it's, it's concentration. I mean, you have to stay on exactly of what's going on in the community, um, and you have to stay on it. Um, you to walk your community, interact with your residents. I do porch conversations. I mean, I actually go on residents' porches and have the open conversations that they want to have. Um, I listen. Listening to your community is important. Learning what your community needs, um, but also executing what's the acts of your residents in your community. Um, you know, I, and I will say, you know, concentration. I mean, concentration and steadfast you know, communication with your community. And delivering the goods, you know. I mean, you got to deliver on the promises, and clearly you've been able to do that. I wonder, you know, six years ago, what what attracted you to want to get involved at this level? Because this is a lot of work. This is a lot of concentration. This is a lot of effort, uh, both physically and psychically. Um, wh- what drew you to doing this kind of work in Woodburn McCabe? Tom, I will say, God drew me to this work. I've been doing this work over a decade. Um, actually, you know, the, the story is when I moved to Woodburn McKay, I said I will never get into community advocacy again um, because <laughs> I had enough through the city um, that that really drew me to, you know, I need a break, you know, community work. But when I when I got here, what drew me to Woodburn McCabe is my grandson got hit 
buy a, 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 a truck here on McCabe Avenue. And I just happened to go to one of the neighborhood association meetings just to learn what the community need, where the community was, and said to myself, you know, the, the, the organization needs a lot of help. So let me let me join in into the help and see if I can make a difference. Well, you and made... I just took the wheel and I started in the right direction and here we are. Well, here we are indeed, and I know you may have <laughs> thought that you were going to give that kind of work up, but uh, we're awfully glad that you were enticed back into it, and I uh, uh, hope your grandson's okay. And, uh, you know, of course, this happened uh, a while ago, but, but uh, you know, our city needs folks like you. Our city needs people who are willing to put in the effort to make a difference in their neighborhood. So thank you for your work, and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. Phyllis Gilmore is the president of the Woodburn McCabe Community Association. She's also the vice president of the York Road Partnership and the Northern District Liaison to the Mayor's Public Safety Commission. That's it for this midday celebration of the Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tom Hall. Have a great holiday.